Hey, everybody. It is Tuesday, April 4th, 2023. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mosh Wanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Uh, Jill, a quick tease today. We will have coverage all day of the unprecedented news <laughs> happening in lower Manhattan, the indictment of the former president. So stay tuned to the Motors Instagram feed all day for what transpires down there. Yeah, and with that, let's get to the headlines here. It is arraignment day for Donald Trump. What to expect as the former president turns himself in to the Manhattan DA. And as if there wasn't enough political news today, over in Chicago, the nation's third largest city, residents will vote for mayor in what's become a battle between two wings of the Democratic Party. In economic news, oil prices are rising again after a surprise announcement by Saudi Arabia and other oil-producing countries. So, yep, get ready to pay a lot more at the gas pump. And remember that Chinese spy balloon? How could we forget, Jill? Turns out it was able to gather sensitive information about U.S. military sites. Florida becomes the latest state to allow residents to carry guns without a permit. As we learn more about the Nashville shooter, NATO officially adds a new country today. Finland is in, but Sweden's application is still being held up. Italy has temporarily banned chat GPT. We'll tell you why other European countries are thinking about doing the very same thing. Fly me to the moon. NASA has named the four astronauts that will return to the moon, and they include the first woman and first person of color. And Mosh has on this day in history. Jill, we throw back to the 80s and 90s. We got a little Casey and JoJo, plus a bit of history from the movie Mannequin. All right, let's do it. Oil prices surged Monday, a day after the oil producing alliance OPEC announced substantial cuts in production. It was a surprise move that reaffirmed Saudi Arabia, the group's leader, as the giants in the oil market. And not surprisingly, it pushed oil prices a whole lot higher. U.S. leaders and other Western officials voiced their displeasure at the move. The cuts total more than 1.1 million barrels a day or 1% of global production. It starts next month. Brent crude, the international price, rose about 6% to about $84.50 a barrel. The price of West Texas Intermediate crude, the U.S. standard, traded up to over 80 bucks a barrel. Sunday's surprise announcement signaled a potential new threat to global efforts to curb inflation and a challenge to the Biden administration, which has been pushing for lower gas prices. Last year, if you remember, President Biden made a special appeal to Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to increase oil production, only to have OPEC trim its output at its next meeting. So there. Oil-producing countries want to max out on profits, and they like to have the price closer to about $90 a barrel. Uncertainties still hang over the global economy. It's not clear how quickly China, the largest oil importer and Saudi Arabia's most important customer, will recover from its zero-COVID lockdowns. Also, the countries are worried about the potential economic damage and lesser economic growth after the banking industry turmoil. So they are trying to prop up prices. Yeah, remember, it's simple supply and demand here. So when they cut production, that uh, decreases supply, which increases demand, which allows them to charge more. U.S. In the U.S., gas prices have been slowly creeping higher in recent weeks. Remember, uh, it is a trailing indicator, gas prices at the pump, from the price of oil, Jill, that you mentioned. But by moving now, the Saudis are signaling that they want to act now rather than wait and see in terms of how the economy plays out. So they're cutting this production here to ensure 
uh, the price of barrel goes up. The site of the prices down to $70 a barrel in March was probably unsettling for them. And so they resolved to act here before bad news would propel the price of a barrel of oil lower. Saudi Arabia right now needs high oil revenues to support their very ambitious development. If you've been tracking any of those headlines lately, they're building brand new cities. They're trying to diversify the kingdom's economy away from oil. And how do they do that? Well, with tons of money from oil so they can build this new economy. What's notable here is it wasn't so long ago that the Saudis viewed the U.S. as their most important ally and would listen to an American president when they asked for favors in terms of oil production. The Saudis clearly here sticking their finger in the eye of America, being like, we're going to do our own thing. America, you're important, but you're not the most important anymore. Jill, for anyone old enough to remember MySpace pre-Facebook, you used to have a feature on there where you got to publicize your top eight friends. And it was like a big deal. Like if you took one of your friends out of the top eight, uh, it was definitely noticed. The Saudis have sort of done that here with the US being like, you're not in our top eight anymore. (laughs) Well, they've got China. (laughs) They've even got Iran at this point. Right. They got the Russians. They got the Chinese. They're like, we're in a no judgment zone with the rest of these countries in terms of human rights. We don't need your judgment, America. For context, by the way, for those of you curious, how much of the oil that comes into America comes from the Saudis? About 6% of all oil into the U.S. comes from Saudi Arabia. Keep in mind here, the U.S. is the largest producer of oil in the world. The U.S. is also the largest consumer of oil in the world. And so imports account for about a third of the 20 million barrels we need daily. We actually produce just under 20 million barrels, but the issue is oil is not homogenous. Oil is different. There are different types of oil. They're refined at different places around the world. So some of the oil produced here in the U.S. does get sent abroad because, again, we need different types of crude. So the U.S. is still dependent on some imports. Our largest source of oil, by the way, is Canada. Number two is Mexico. And then come the Saudis. So AAA has a headline, like the temperatures, gas prices start to rise, which is a little too cutesy for my taste, to be totally honest. (laughs) We also should note that this is the typical season where gas prices rise. We're heading to summer driving season. We actually go to a different type of gasoline that is more energy efficient in the summer. And so you do typically see prices go up this time of year, though the Saudi move is not going to help in any way, shape or form. Right. So just for perspective, the current average is $3.50 a gallon. That is up about 11 cents from a month ago. But it is down uh, substantially from last year at this time when it was $4.19 a gallon. Remember, the war in Ukraine had just started. So better than where we were last year, uh, but worse than we were last month. By the way, before we move on here, I should note that the U.S. is producing its own oil at record levels right now and continuing to look at uh, even more production in the coming years. And I did get a couple of questions on Instagram, Jill, in regards to the Keystone XL pipeline. Remember, we have a pipeline. There was a debate about an extension of that line in recent years from Canada, an assessment during the Trump administration found that even if it was in effect, it would have impacted gas prices by between one and three cents. All right, Moshe, moving on. Former President Trump will be arrested and arraigned today in Manhattan. He flew from Florida to New York on Monday with nearly a dozen aides and his son, Eric, and he'll be heading back to Florida later tonight. Jill, if you turned on any of the cable news networks on uh, Monday, it was wall to wall with every movement of Trump. It felt sort of like, O.J. Ford Bronco at moments. Who's he with? Who's in the plane? (laughs) Is he there? What is his facial expression? 
Meanwhile, the Trump campaign's already scheduled a primetime news conference at Mar-a-Lago for this evening. Though, Joe, we should note that is up in the air. There is the potential here for the judge today to put a gag order on Trump. So stand by for headlines around that. That could certainly impact how uh, much the former president can really talk about this case moving forward. All right. So what can we expect when he arrives in court? For one, unlike typical defendants, Trump will be surrounded by Secret Service agents. He will be fingerprinted. It isn't clear if he's going to have a mugshot taken. If he does, it may not be released to the public. Mugshots typically are not publicly released unless that helps with the case in some way. Trump's attorney says he does not expect that Trump will be handcuffed, even though that would be the norm. You might remember when the former chief financial officer of the Trump organization, Alan Weisselberg, was arrested in 2021. He was handcuffed. Sources telling The New York Times that before the arraignment, Trump is likely to be held in an interview room and not a cell. He will then enter the courtroom where he is expected to plead not guilty. Moshe Maggie Haberman from The New York Times, who has been covering Trump for years, some actually call her the Trump whisperer. She says that there's been a lot of debate in the Trump camp about how he should act during this whole process. What should his demeanor be like when he's walking into the courtroom? Should he smile? Should he be stoic? Does he want to seem like he's taking this seriously? Does he want to seem like he's making a mockery of it? Uh, All of this could have huge implications for his presidential campaign. Yeah, it's notable. Uh, Haberman, by the way, for all that she has written through the years, uh, Trump continues to do interviews with her. So she continues to remain very well sourced within uh, his camp. One of his attorneys, Joe Takapina, says he hopes the proceedings can stay, quote, painless and classy and that the former president does plan to plead not guilty. Uh, As for what takes place tomorrow, details are still very much up in the air as you stated, though Takapina says that the ex-president will very loud and proudly say not guilty. The other big question we have, what are the exact charges? Remember, we haven't seen this indictment released publicly yet. They are believed to be related to the hush money payments back in 2016 to Stormy Daniels. She's the former porn star who claimed she had an affair with Trump, was going to go public with them, and then was paid more than $100,000 not to talk about it. The issue here is not the hush money payment, but how the Trump organization described the payments. They apparently classified them as legal expenses, but a legal retainer didn't actually exist. So that's considered fraud, a misdemeanor, and apparently it can be a felony if that fraud was done to get around federal campaign finance law. Remember, Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, went to jail over this, and he's one of the witnesses the grand jury spoke to before indicting Trump last week. The prosecutors maintain here that after that payment from Michael Cohen, the attorney, to Stormy Daniels, that Trump's handling of the reimbursement violated state law. Apparently, Trump faces more than 30 counts. That could be individual documents there. All added up, it is believed that Trump could face up to four years in prison. Again, we're waiting on the exact details of the indictment. But there are a lot of obstacles, as we've discussed in this podcast, for the prosecution here. They need to convince a judge to move forward with this, that there are merits to this case and that Trump had knowledge he was committing a crime. As we mentioned yesterday, and this speaks to the whole discussion, you were noting, Jill, as to the demeanor of Trump. The campaign has been using his indictment to raise big money. They raised more than $5 million from donors over the weekend. And so does Trump have an interest here in releasing the mugshot himself? 
uh, in sort of having fun with the charges, in taking them seriously. And, and ultimately, a legal strategy could differ from a PR strategy. So that certainly is part of the discussion here. As for the theater rounded tomorrow, law enforcement officials are preparing for a chaotic atmosphere. New York City Mayor Eric Adams spoke out on Monday saying he doesn't want any rabble rousers and that people will be arrested for violence. He actually called out Marjorie Taylor Greene, who plans to be outside the uh, courthouse on Tuesday, saying she could even be arrested if she causes trouble. Barricades have been set up around the court in lower Manhattan, as well as Trump Tower uptown. All right, I want to take a moment here to thank our sponsor this week, Athletic Greens. I've been using their AG1 supplement since the fall. The Athletic Greens AG1 powder is just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. I found it to be really easy, really quick. It lets me get on with my day knowing I've gotten more than 75 important ingredients, including tons of minerals and vitamins. It also has pre and probiotics, which help you with gut health, support digestion, With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens right now is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D as well as five free travel packs of AG1. You can head over to athleticgreens.com slash Mo News to take advantage of this offer. You can get a discounted monthly subscription or try it one time for just a month. Again, that special Mo News deal you can find over at athleticgreens.com slash Mo News. It's an opportunity to really start to take ownership of your health. All right, time now for the speed read. Remember that Chinese spy balloon? Feels like it was a year ago. Jill, literally today, two months since it was shot down. It feels like a lifetime ago in terms of news. Um, From NBC News, that Chinese spy balloon that flew across the U.S. was able to gather intelligence from several sensitive American military sites Even though the Biden administration tried to block it from doing so, this is all according to two current senior U.S. officials and one former senior administration official, China was able to control the balloon so that it could make multiple passes over some of the sites, at times flying figure eight formations, and then transmit that information it collected back to Beijing in real time, according to those officials. The intelligence that China collected was mostly from electronic signals, which can be picked up from weapons systems or include communications from base personnel rather than images. But the U.S. military here is still defending their call not to shoot it down over uh, American land, waiting until it was over water there off the coast of the Carolinas. The officials saying China actually could have gathered much more intelligence from these sensitive sites if not for their efforts to move around potential targets and obscure the balloon's ability to pick up electronic signals by stopping them from broadcasting. The spokesperson for the National Security Council, John Kirby, would only say Monday that, quote, knowing it was going to enter U.S. airspace, we took action to limit the ability of this balloon to garner anything of additive or especially useful content. Though it is notable that those anonymous folks are speaking out to NBC there, Jill, because there's clearly a debate happening behind the scenes. That's typically what these types of stories indicate. One of the senior Republicans on Capitol Hill, Roger Wicker, he's a senator from Mississippi and the ranking member on the Senate Armed Services Committee, Uh, called out the administration saying, we have consistently learned from press reports about the Chinese surveillance balloon more than we have from administration officials. These latest revelations demonstrate that they have made an unacceptable mistake. I intend to hold this administration accountable. China has said repeatedly, of course, that this was a weather balloon. It's straight off course. But this whole idea of doing figure eight formations and specifically going out for military sites clearly calls those Chinese statements into question here. 
We also learned from the NBC report, Jill, that the balloon had a self-destruct mechanism on it that could have been activated remotely by China. But the official said it's not clear if that didn't happen because it malfunctioned or because China didn't trigger it. The U.S. has collected a whole bunch of pieces from this balloon after it was shot down over water, and they've been studying them for uh, nearly two months now over at the FBI and CIA. I can't imagine that an unmanned civilian airship would have a kill button <laughs> that they <laughs> that they could uh, remotely activate. Yeah, Jill, I think we do this from the beginning uh, as the U.S. has released more details, but it does not appear the Chinese have been very honest about what this balloon actually was. From ABC7 Chicago, the nation's third largest city will vote today for mayor in what has become a battle between the two wings of the Democratic Party. Progressive Brandon Johnson and centrist Paul Vallis present different approaches to crime and policing, public education and taxes as they meet in a runoff on Tuesday. Johnson's been endorsed by Senator Bernie Sanders, while some wealthy Republicans and established Chicago politicians, including Illinois Democratic Senator Dick Durbin, have flocked to Vallis. Each man backed by different unions. Vallis has sought to paint Johnson as a radical, while Johnson has played up an interview clip from 2009 of Vallis saying that he is, quote, more of a Republican. They are currently locked in a dead heat, each with 44% of the vote, according to a poll last week by Northwestern. About 12% of Chicagoans undecided. Yeah, Chicago will be the latest indication here, Jill, of how voters in major cities are dealing with uh, crime and some other issues. We saw it in L.A., we saw it in New York, we've seen it in San Francisco. Vallis and Johnson were the top two finishers in a field of nine candidates last month. The current mayor, Lori Lightfoot, after only one term in office, actually failed in her bid for re-election, finishing in third place last month. A lot of contrast here, as you noted, including the fact that Vallis is white and Johnson is black, and that is a factor that plays a major role in a very heavily segregated big city like Chicago. That Northwestern poll you cited found that among black registered voters, 55% favored Johnson versus 28% for Vallis. Meanwhile, among white voters, 51% favor Vallis, 42% favor Johnson. It appears the Latino vote will be the wild card. Right now, Vallis is beating Johnson by 11 points there. And this is interesting, according to the poll, about one third of Latino voters in Chicago thought Vallis was a Latino name. It turns out Vallis is actually uh, Greek. But it appears there is some confusion there among some voters. As we noted, crime has dominated this race. The poll finds that 50% of Chicagoans, half of all voters, listed crime as their most important issue. Homicides have been rising for the past couple of years. Other crimes like carjacking have also increased, and that has taken center stage here. You mentioned the various unions backing the two candidates. The police union is fully in support of Vallis here. Overseas from the Financial Times, Finland will officially join NATO on Tuesday, marking the completion of a swift journey into the military alliance following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Finland has an 810-mile border with Russia, meaning that NATO's frontier with Russia will roughly double in length, and the move drew a pledge from Moscow that it will beef up its forces in border regions. It will become the 31st country to join the NATO military alliance, Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February last year pushed Finland and its neighbor Sweden to apply for NATO membership, abandoning decades of effective neutrality and military non-alignment. The last hurdle to Finland's membership was removed last week when Turkey's parliament voted to ratify Helsinki's application. 
even as it kept Sweden's bid on hold. Yeah, NATO requires every single country in NATO to approve an application. Turkey was the one holdout. And they continue to hold up Sweden's application, as you mentioned. They claim that Sweden harbors members of what Turkey considers a terrorist group, members of the Kurdistan Workers' Party. That's something that Sweden denies. And so Turkey says, we're not going to let Sweden into NATO until you extradite the people we want you to extradite to Turkey. Hungary, by the way, is also holding up Sweden's admission. They're another member of NATO. They say Sweden has been critical of their prime minister, Viktor Orban's policies. NATO diplomats, though, expect Hungary to approve Sweden if Turkey also moves to do so. The announcement of Finland's entry, by the way, just comes, Jill, after they had an election there over the weekend. And left-wing Prime Minister Sanna Marin's party went down. Finland's main conservative party, and when we say conservative, we're talking about conservative by European standards, so much more of moderate Democrat in terms of U.S. politics. The conservative party over there claimed victory. It also saw right-wing populists take second place. And Marin's party, the Social Democratic Party, in third place. We have discussed Marin on this podcast. She was the world's youngest leader in 2019 at the age of 34. She has fought sexism, including last year when uh, she was caught dancing in a video with her friends. And uh, people thought that that was unbecoming of a prime minister. And she's like, you wouldn't say the same thing about a man. At the end of the day, she was pretty popular in Finland and abroad. But as most elections go around the world, the economy was the number one issue, and the conservatives claimed that public spending should be cut and won out on that issue. Okay, back here in the U.S. from the Associated Press, authorities revealed Monday that Nashville mass killer Audrey Hale fired off 152 rounds during the assault of the Covenant School that left six dead, including three nine-year-olds. So that information emerged in the Nashville Police Department's latest update on their investigation, which also revealed that Hale plotted that massacre for months in writings found inside of Hale's car and home. Police said in a news release that Hale documented in journals planning over a period of months to commit mass murder at the Covenant School. While a precise motive still has not been discovered, police say they've determined that Hale considered the actions of other mass murderers which is a fear, always those copycat type of crimes. We have learned in recent days that Hale was devastated by the recent death of a close friend, was under the care of a doctor for an emotional disorder, and had sent a series of dark messages to a friend just before the assault began. Jill, apparently they've sent out those journals to Quantico to be studied by further law enforcement professionals. So imagine we'll continue to learn more details there. It did come on Monday as students across Nashville walked out of class to protest gun violence at the Tennessee Capitol. Monday marked one week since that elementary school shooting. What is surprising me as well is that Hale had friends because so often we hear that these shooters are loners and that they don't have friends and that they don't have anyone to turn to. So the fact that Hale was getting help, was seeing professionals, had friends, makes it all the more shocking. And while Hale was getting this medical help with their psychological issue, Hale purchased seven weapons unbeknownst to his family. On a somewhat related front from NBC News, Florida is now the 26th state to allow residents to carry a concealed, loaded weapon without a permit. With little fanfare, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed that legislation Monday in a private ceremony alongside sponsors of the bill and gun rights advocates, including the NRA in attendance. It is a notable departure for DeSantis, who typically likes to hold splashy events for the cameras and media. 
DeSantis hailed the bill as making, quote, constitutional carry the law in Florida, a term used by gun advocates. Last month, a poll conducted by the University of North Florida showed 77% of residents were somewhat or strongly opposed to the permitless carry legislation, a number that includes 62% of Republicans. Opponents of the proposal have said that it will increase gun violence and that it was telling that DeSantis did not hold a public signing ceremony like he has done in the past for other high-profile bills. Yeah, so this bill passed mainly along partisan lines in Tallahassee. Florida now joins most southern states, uh, a number of Midwestern states, and most of the Mountain West in allowing concealed carry without a permit. Uh, By the way, there are a number of states that also allow open carry without a permit. Concealed weapons licenses will become optional for Florida gun owners who may still want to get one to carry their weapons in other states, which require a license. This law will take effect on July 1st. It does not change a background check requirement for gun purchases. Background checks are still required through federally licensed dealers, but not private sales. Keep in mind, by the way, private sales account for the majority of gun purchases and still don't have background checks. But gun advocates here believe that the Second Amendment should just be like the First Amendment, they say, and you don't need a permit for free speech, and they don't believe you need a permit for carrying a gun. A Johns Hopkins University study last year found that weekend concealed carry laws are associated with nearly 10% increase in rates of criminal assaults with firearms. We're awaiting more data on that this year as more and more states join the uh, permitless carry trend here. And that Hopkins study did find that the relationship is most pronounced in places that allow people convicted of violent misdemeanor crimes to carry a concealed firearm without a permit. Those states saw a 24% increase in assaults with a gun. There are limits in Florida right now when it comes to felony crimes and not being able to own a gun after you commit those. A little tech news to get to from Reuters. Italy announced on Friday a blockage of the artificial intelligence app ChatGPT within the country's borders. Italy has also started an investigation into the app. The ban is based on the allegation that ChatGPT does not adequately protect user data or have any kind of mechanism to prevent minors from using the AI service. Under European regulations, ChatGPT parent company OpenAI has 20 days to comply with the order or else it could face fines of up to 4% of global revenue or $22 million, whichever is bigger. Generative AI, such as OpenAI's ChatGPT, relies on algorithms to generate remarkably human responses to text questions based on analyzing large volumes of data, some of which may be owned by internet users. So Italy's move here to temporarily ban ChatGPT has inspired a whole bunch of other European countries to study if harsher measures are needed to rein in these chatbots. Privacy regulators in France and Ireland have reached out to Italy to find out more about the basis for the ban. Germany says they could also follow in the footsteps here and block ChatGPT over data security concerns. Right now, parliamentarians in the European Union, in the uh, central EU, are not sure whether their existing laws uh, are effective enough for AI. But keep in mind, Jill, this is something we've discussed before. The Europeans are very quick to legislate on tech lately when it comes to privacy, uh, Facebook, Apple. A whole bunch of companies have faced more regulations there than they face here in the U.S. And so here you see European regulators jumping on this chat GPT thing saying, whoa, 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 this is moving too quickly. Let's ban this until they can assure us that this is secure, 
protecting information, etc. And it comes as uh, you haven't seen that level of uh, scrutiny or speed here in the U.S. Fly me to the moon from Axios. NASA has named four astronauts, including the first woman and first person of color, to return to the moon 50 years after the Apollo flights ended. The Artemis II mission, set to launch next year, will take the astronauts around the moon and pave the way for a future mission to land a yet-to-be-announced crew on the moon in 2025. Christina Hammock-Cook, Victor Glover, Reed Weissman, and Canadian astronaut Jeremy Hansen will test out many of the systems necessary for future missions before coming back to Earth. Glover said, we need to celebrate this moment in human history because Artemis II is more than a mission to the moon and back. It is more than a mission that has to happen before we send people to the surface of the moon. It is the next step that gets humanity to Mars. And this crew will never forget that. Yes, you might remember last year, they sent the capsule unmanned around the moon. This is the next mission, which is send people around the moon. And then the third mission is put people back on the moon. Christina Cook would be the first woman to orbit the moon. She is 44. She currently holds the record for the longest single space flight by a woman, 328 days. She also has spent hours uh, in missions outside the space station. Glover was the first black man assigned as a crew member on the space station. He would be the first person of color to orbit the moon. And then, as you mentioned, Jill, Jeremy Hansen, first Canadian to orbit the moon. The Artemis program is their bid to get astronauts back to the surface of the moon. Uh, As you noted, the last time was 1972. The agency is working towards making the program long-lived. They want to create a permanent moon base here. The important point about a moon base, now that we've discovered ice on the moon, is can it be self-sustaining? And it's key to a, a sustained effort to get to Mars. You'll basically need to make a pit stop on the moon on your way to Mars. NASA still has a long way to go before that Artemis three mission, that which will actually have us setting foot back on the moon. A lot of technical kinks, it has to work out. For that 2025 date to be back on the moon within two years, probably going to get pushed back if uh, recent history is any indication. And for those who are familiar with a little bit of Greek mythology, Apollo, of course, was the first program to get us to the moon. Artemis is the next mission in Greek mythology. Artemis was the twin sister of Apollo. So if the moon could talk, what would the moon say? When did I become a pit stop? Wasn't I kind of like the big (laughs) destination? And I would say back to the moon, the moon is just a piece of Earth. There was actually a huge collision billions of years ago. (laughs) And moon, you're actually part of what was originally Earth. You actually busted off in a big collision. The moon right after that used to orbit the Earth much closer than it is today, just a, a few thousand miles out. Eventually, over the billions of years, it's gotten into its position now where it's about 200,000 miles away. Okay, our final speed read here. Late Monday night, the University of Connecticut topped off one of the most impressive March Madness runs in history to bring home its fifth ever men's basketball championship. The Yukon Huskies defeated the San Diego State Aztecs 76 to 59. The Huskies are now tied with Duke and Indiana, all of them now with five men's basketball championships. UConn dominated this tournament, winning all six of their games by an average of 20 points. UConn on Monday night built a 16-point lead going into halftime, only to see San Diego State, which was in its first ever championship game, trim the lead to just five points with about five minutes left in the game. But that's when UConn pulled away. It was a very unpredictable tournament. All four number one seeds actually failed to reach the Elite Eight run. For the first time ever in men's basketball tournament history, 
We should note UConn and San Diego State were a four seed and five seed, respectively. There's going to be a lot of celebrating in Connecticut this week. All right, Jill, now it's time for On This Day in History on this April 4th, 55 years ago today, on this day in 1968, civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated by James Earl Ray in Memphis, Tennessee. King was just 39 years old at the time of his death. This is a bit of the CBS News special report anchored by Walter Cronkite that night. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., civil rights leader and Nobel Prize winner, was shot and killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. Dr. King was in Memphis to lead demonstrators in support of striking garbage men there. He was standing on the balcony of the Lorraine Hotel on the second floor when a single shot came from across the street. It apparently hit him in the neck. He was rushed to St. Joseph's Hospital in Memphis and died there an hour after uh, the uh, attempt uh, on his life. Joe, there's a museum now at the Lorraine Motel where uh, King was assassinated. In the last years of his life, King was facing some criticism from within the Black community who wanted him to take a more confrontational approach to seeking change. He was actually condemned in some parts for his nonviolent push, saying it wasn't getting them far enough. So at the time, King was actually beginning to form a coalition of poor Black and white Americans. He wanted to take his movement much larger. He began to speak publicly against the Vietnam War. It was actually something that got picked up by the FBI, which under its director, J. Edgar Hoover, had spent years uh, actually pushing death threats to MLK. There's a whole history there that is worth digging into if you're interested. After his assassination was announced on the night of April 4th, uh, the death sparked rioting in more than 100 cities across America, including burning and looting. President Lyndon Johnson tried to advocate at the time that people uh, pursue MLK's nonviolence in reaction to the assassination. The assassination also led Congress to push through a follow-up to the Civil Rights Act. As far as the assassin, James Earl Ray, he was caught two months later in London at the airport there. He was later convicted of the murder, sentenced to 99 years in prison. Authorities had found his fingerprints on the rifle used to kill King. It did take them, though, two months to track him down. In the following year, Ray pleaded guilty initially to King's murder, sentenced to prison, but then afterwards recanted his confession, saying he was the victim of conspiracy. There's no evidence, though, in subsequent investigations that there was any sort of conspiracy, at least that we know of so far. Fast forward a little bit to this day in 1973, the original Twin Towers of the World Trade Center were completed on this day 50 years ago. At the time, the 110-story buildings rising to 1,350 feet were the tallest buildings in the world. Of course, those buildings were destroyed in the 9-11 terror attacks. As far as height, the Twin Towers stood as the tallest only for a few months, actually. The Sears Tower later that year in 73 would surpass them. For context, by the way, just in terms of how high skyscrapers have gotten, the Sears Tower, now known as the Willis Tower, though Chicagoans keep calling it the Sears Tower, like me, is now the 26th tallest building in the world. It shows you how many taller skyscrapers have been built over the last few decades. Some business history now, 48 years ago today, Microsoft was officially founded by a young Bill Gates and his partner, Paul Allen, out in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And finally, we end with some music history, turning 25 years old today. You might remember that song. That is All My Life by Casey and JoJo. On this day, 25 years ago, it reached number one on the Billboard charts. Jill, I played this song on repeat as a high school uh, radio DJ. I thought you were going to say like you had your first kiss to this song or something. It was around that time. But no, I believe 
<laughs> but, but we had a very small 88.1 FM station at Stevenson High School in Lincolnshire, Illinois. And this, along with LL Cool J, something like a phenomenon, I believe, uh, rocked 98 for me. And look at you now. <laughs> Still playing it as a podcast <laughs> DJ, Jill. And a little bit more musical history going back to the 80s here, Jill. 36 years ago today, on this date in 1987, that's Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now by Starship. It hit number one on the Billboard charts. Some of you may know that from the 80s movie Mannequin. Uh, Jill, it's personal for me. It was actually me and my wife Alex's wet song. That's a great song and different. I, I don't hear, you don't hear a lot of people using that as their wedding song. At least that in 2021 when you guys got married. Right, it's a throwback at that point. So that was, uh, that was our first dance. Jill, what was your wedding song? Jack Johnson, Better Together. My, my husband and I love Jack Johnson. Also a very, very strong pick there, Jill. All right, on that loving note, we're going to end this podcast. We want to thank you for listening to the Mo News Podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store ah! so we can continue to grow. My daughter just tapped me on the shoulder. Um, <laughs> Alex, you want to give us a live thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast? You listen to the Mo News Podcast. Have a good night. Oh, I can't top great. that. Bye, everybody. <laughs> oh, bye, everyone. <laughs>